Thanks for being with us today for Take Care, exploring the latest in health and wellness this week with a discussion on infertility. I'm Katherine Loper. And I'm Jason Smith. When we started researching, reaching out to guests, and thumbing through articles on infertility, we realized that it's still a sensitive subject. But advocates will tell you, whether it's infertility or things like mental health or alcoholism, that talking about sensitive subjects is helpful for a number of reasons. Awareness is one of those reasons. Infertility is not uncommon, and it affects women and men. Well, well, does does that mean? Yes, that means you're not going to have any babies. Oh, well, could there be a mistake? Our first guest describes infertility as a couple's medical problem, though it becomes a woman's social burden to bear. About 15% of couples will have some kind of trouble achieving a pregnancy. It's not always the natural and beautiful event you may have been expecting. For you and your husband, those weeks do seem to drag a little. And chances are your husband will be looking forward to the day with just about as much anticipation as you will. Our first guest will clear up the definition of infertility from his point of view as a gynecologist at the Mayo Clinic. Dr. Zarat Khan is with us to discuss infertility basics. Thanks for joining us, Dr. Khan. Thank you for having me. Let's just start with the basic definition of infertility. How would you describe what that is? So classically, infertility is defined as when a couple has been attempting to achieve a pregnancy and have not had success for about 12 months for women that are 35 years or less. And for couples where the women are 35 years or older, that has been classically defined as no success in six months of trying. So is it strictly those time cues that if a woman or a couple is having trouble conceiving, they should go by? Or there are other signs that they should get some help trying to figure out why they're having trouble conceiving? That's an excellent question. I always sort of joke with patients and say that I'm probably the last person to ask that question from since I'm very biased because I see people with infertility. But I think the dogma is shifting and it's the definitions are not as dogmatic anymore. And I think more and more we're talking about infertility as being a disease and a disease that impacts quality of life. And in my opinion, I think a couple needs to seek fertility evaluation anytime they feel like they're not getting to their goals. So waiting that six month or 12 months, in my opinion, is a little bit torturous for some couples. And unfortunately, most of our medical community hasn't sort of gotten to that new state of defining infertility. And I still time and time and again see couples that have been anxiously waiting for those 12 months or six months to be over so that they could be referred to my clinic. And so I think that that is a timely question and a very important one as well, because I personally believe that we should be allowing couples to seek further advanced fertility care if they feel like they're not achieving their goals in two to three months. Two to three months. That's interesting because I think that is more progressive than what some doctors would say. And I do want to talk about that a little bit more, but I want to get some more of the basics out of the way. What percentage of women do have some trouble conceiving? Because I think a lot of women see this as an abnormal thing. Sure. I'm going to basically sort of agree with your question, but also add a little bit to that. I feel like we should be talking about couples and not women, because I believe that infertility is an issue or a problem of the couple. And we tend to forget about the men in the equation quite a bit. And 20% of all couples that we will see will actually have some form of male factor infertility. One of the things that I preach a lot is that infertility is a couple's medical problem, though it becomes a woman's social burden to bear. So when I talk about infertility, I usually say about 15% of couples 
will have some form of trouble in achieving a pregnancy. How is that related to age? Because you did mention that after 35, there's a different time frame we look at than before 35. Absolutely. So one of the hard things that we have to deal with in an infertility clinic is dealing with ovarian reserve because it's a finite number. Women are born with a set number of eggs, give or take about 2 million at the time of birth. And on an average, the average woman will undergo 200 menstrual cycles, give or take, prior to getting into perimenopause. And so we have this limited amount of time that we can then utilize to our advantage. But that decline in ovarian age, unfortunately, doesn't go hand in hand with advancement of chronologic age. So we do tell patients, even though it's very unfair, but we do say that when you're at the prime and peak of your chronologic age in your mid-30s, unfortunately, ovarian age tends to take a big hit. And 35 is the number that's been classically used. But if we look at more and more data, we can see very young women with diminished ovarian reserve or decreased egg supplies, and sometimes older women with good egg supplies. And so... 35 is sort of that line in the sand that's drawn because we usually start seeing an effect after 35, and in my opinion, more so after 38 and excessively after the age of 40. So maternal age or the female's age in a couple does dictate a lot of the treatments that we can cater or provide to a couple. And have you seen a change in the rate of infertility over time? People do talk about infertility or the incidence of infertility rising. But when we look at overall numbers and epidemiologic data and global numbers, fortunately that has still remained fairly fixed or within the same number at that 10 to 15 percent overall. And you mentioned ovarian reserve. What are some of the other most typical causes of infertility? When we talk about infertility, we sort of put things into a couple of different categories. I think one of the biggest ones that we always tend to forget to talk about is male factor infertility or some issues with semen analysis or semen parameters in the male part of the couple if it's a heterosexual couple. Other things that are very important are the ovarian reserve or the robustness or how much the ovaries will respond to a treatment. And that's something that's fairly genetic and We cannot change parameters of ovarian reserve, but we definitely want to check for them to make sure that the person has adequate amount of egg supply. There are other very telltale characteristic things that we want to look for, and those are making sure the uterus is anatomically normal and the uterus doesn't have any sort of lesions like fibroids or polyps that could be playing a role in infertility. And we want to make sure that the female in the couple has patent fallopian tubes so that they could be able to carry the egg from the ovary into the uterus. You mentioned genetics. So are there some genetic links to infertility, either in men or women? And, you know, should men and women be checking with their parents to see if there were any issues, you know, in their family? Genetic history and a family history is exceedingly important from a couple that we see at their first intake. There are definitely certain genetic diseases that can predispose a person or an individual to infertility. Some of the most common ones are things that are chromosomal abnormalities. In women, most commonly Turner syndrome, and in men, most commonly Klinefelter syndrome are two classic ones that lead to infertility or subfertility. 
There are other very, very common genetic things like fragile X syndrome and other diseases that are similar that are genetic in their origin that can have a severe impact on sperm quality or production as well as egg quality in production. So I think getting a holistic history, family history, as well as an infertility history of the family is very important. And then based on a case-by-case basis, we can make those decisions of whether that couple would warrant or benefit by seeing a geneticist versus not. Is that difficult, though? Because, I mean, infertility wasn't always talked about, and it wasn't always talked about in ways that are very precise or useful. You know, people don't talk about things like miscarriages and you know, it might often be hard for couples trying to conceive to know what happened in their families. I think you're hitting the nail on the head there. Time and time again, we see couples in our clinic that say, well, we don't talk about that stuff on the dinner table, or I'm not sure I can ask my mom or I can check with grandma. So you're absolutely right. You know, the area of medicine that we work in not necessarily is a a common speaking point amongst friends or social circles. So I do agree that we are dealing with subjects that are very, very personal. And I think that's why having a very honest conversation and a good rapport with your patients is going to help. And then I think one of the things that I always am preaching in my clinic is that we need to start talking more about these issues. We need to start talking about pregnancy loss. We need to start talking about the importance of infertility because we're not only creating awareness, we're actually helping these couples that feel like they're on an isolated island. If they don't hear that other people have been through something impactful or life-altering like infertility treatment, that feeling of isolation kicks in, and I feel like that in itself is a big blow for the morale with couples that are dealing with infertility. And as you said, treat it as a medical issue, as a disease, and not as a, as a flaw. You're absolutely right. And I think that's what we preach every day and we're trying to fight every day in saying that the World Health Organization, the WHO, defines infertility as a medical disease. And so when such a big governing body describes it as a disease, we're trying to fight for appropriate insurance coverage for such issues as well, and also looking at it as a disease because it is a disease that impacts quality of life tremendously. And back to the causes of infertility, is there ever a time where we just don't know the cause for certain? I mean, there have been so many advances, but do you still run into cases where it's just like we just aren't 100% sure why this is happening? I mean, we would love to say that we can answer all questions, but unfortunately, we, meaning medical science, hasn't advanced enough where where we are able to specifically answer each question. So when I do see couples and when we look at statistics overall, about one in five couples or about 20% of the patients that we see in the clinic don't have any obvious reason for infertility. When we do all testing on the male and the female and make sure that there's adequate sperm, egg supply, patent fallopian tubes, and a uterus that's normal on ultrasound, we usually will call that unexplained infertility, and that's about 20% of couples that we see in the clinic. Now, we know that we are calling it unexplained infertility. We know that there's probably something wrong that otherwise can't be determined with the preliminary round of testing. There are methods to deal with unexplained infertility, and there are well-established protocols for that that we can reserve for a different conversation, but it's important to know that in about one in five couples, we may never know the reason for why they're not getting to their goal, but we can still help them achieve their goal 
by increasing their odds of pregnancy and using more aggressive forms of fertility treatment. That's really interesting. What research are you most excited about that's underway now to, you know, maybe try to get at the root of some of those causes that we don't know or come up with more ways to uh, help couples conceive? One of the things that we want to look at is to make sure that the embryos that we select for a transfer are the best quality embryos. And there's one of several different ways of choosing a particular embryo to transfer, but most of that is either done on looking at the embryo and then grading the physical appearance of the embryo. What I think we're going to start seeing in the next decade or two decades is the use of artificial intelligence that will be able to tell us which embryo would be the best one to transfer. There are several different people, including ourselves, working on looking at how embryos are divided and how long the embryo takes to divide from, say, one to two cell and so on and so forth, and not just look at the time at which they divide, but with the pattern of division, making sure a one cell goes to a beautiful two cell and so on and so forth. Now, right now, the human eye is judging all of that. But I think in the near future, we're going to use some bioinformatics software and we're going to use artificial intelligence and feed thousands and thousands of patients' worth data to this sort of smart computer that will then decide algorithms and devise different ways of deciding on its own which embryos will be destined for a pregnancy. So I think that's something very, very exciting that is going to be upcoming in the next decade or so. There are also some additional things that we're doing with embryos, which is genetic testing of the embryos. And right now, we still are using that commercially as clinical standard of care. But I think there's a lot of room for improvement as we move forward in really trying to decrease the false positives that we get from that genetic testing and pick the best embryo for a transfer for a successful pregnancy. So in the world of IVF, I think those are some very exciting things that we're looking forward to that is really going to increase the chances of our couples getting pregnant. Well, that is really exciting. And I was not thinking we were going to talk about artificial intelligence in this interview about infertility. So that's really, really interesting. I really appreciate your insights over where infertility stands in the world of medicine, as well as just in our world today. So thank you so much for joining us, Dr. Zarat Khan of the Mayo Clinic. Thank you so much. And, you know, we tell all our patients that once you're in the fertility clinic, this is the twilight zone and the sky's the limit to sort of think about things. And in the year 2020, we're really, really looking forward to further advancing all the medical and clinical applications that we have in really helping our patients get to their goals. Dr. Zarat Khan is a gynecologist at the Mayo Clinic. After any diagnosis, it's natural to want to seek answers and support. Thanks to modern technology, there are options for those with an infertility diagnosis. From timing intercourse to provoking ovulation to performing artificial insemination, there are a range of procedures and approaches that can help. With us to discuss these is the CNY Fertility Center's Dr. Maribel Verdialis. Thank you very much for your time today. Thank you for having me. We know a lot of couples tend to go through issues with infertility, and it's a pretty sensitive topic. But is there a a number that you can put on that? How many couples or individuals deal with infertility? So roughly about 10 to 15 percent of couples deal with uh, issues in the reproduction. Has that number gone up or down in recent years? 
I don't know empirically, I've noticed in my practice that that number has gone up and the age range has increased as well. So I have younger patients seeking help and I have older patients seeking help. And there are many reasons why that's happening, but I've seen the range go bigger and maybe that's what's driving the numbers a little higher. I know this is kind of a broad question, but what are some of the causes of infertility? So some of the causes are male factor, okay? So it takes, I joke around with the patients, it takes four things to make a baby. Healthy sperm, healthy egg, healthy uterus and tubes, and a healthy vessel. If any of those issues is compromised, and sometimes more than one, then we're going to have problems conceiving naturally. So let's talk about the sperm, and it could be job-related. I have a gentleman with a low sperm count, and because of the type of job he does, it affects his count. It could be related to you know, health issues like diabetes, birth defects, and then you have the egg factor, which it's affected in many ways, including deviations from the endocrine system. So maybe a thyroid problem is going to show up as a decreased ovarian reserve issue. Then you have a uterine issue or a tubal issue. So those are essentially the four main problems other than systemic diseases. That's why I like including the vessel. So if somebody has any sort of autoimmune or hypercoagulation, so you know they clot easier than somebody else, that could also show as issues with conceiving or retaining the pregnancy. Now, there's also a chance that that infertility, regardless of the testing that you do, may not have a clear cause, and that's something that you refer to as unexplained infertility. Can you try to define what that means? That means that after we do all of the testing and all of the evaluation, everything seems to be fine. So we don't seem to have a sperm issue. We don't seem to have an egg issue or a tube or a vessel or a uterine issue, and the couple just simply can't get pregnant. There are a lot of hypotheses on why that happens, including, you know, subclinical autoimmune issues or inflammation, but it's all up in the air. And how often do couples or individuals come up against that type of diagnosis? I would say within that particular group, 10, 15% that we don't know exactly what's going on. Is there any data in your experience that shows whether you may find more men being infertile or women? Is it kind of split down the middle? In my experience, it's kind of split down the middle. Or I see more and more a compounded effect, meaning there is some issues with the male and some issues with the female. We know that there are a lot of options when couples are faced with an infertility diagnosis. So can you walk us through some of the options that couples have available to them? So I tell all of our couples that the workup is very important, regardless of the reason they're coming in, because I sometimes get people after having tubal reversals or vasectomy reversals wondering why is the workup so extensive, because, you know, our biologists do change, we age, you know, there's wear, tear. But let's say after we've figured out what's happening with that individual couple, If the tubes are open, we can start with something as simple as oral medication and time intercourse. 
us as CNY, we believe in a very holistic approach. So we will try to improve overall health that will then improve things. I mean, you know, we, we deal with a diet and certain supplements that have been suggested to improve fertility. But going back to the interventional options, oral medication and time intercourse would be your very basic. Then you can move up the ladder with oral medication, provoking ovulation, and then performing artificial insemination. And that could be in a minimally monitored setting or a very intensely monitored setting with the patient coming to the office every few days or so. And then you go into the more intense protocols where you might add some of the injections that people talk about, some of the IVF meds, but then just do the artificial insemination. And then you have the IVF with all its variants. And then after that, you go into donor egg, donor sperm, surrogate mothers. It's a pretty extensive gamut of choices. Yeah, there are a lot of options seemingly available. Are any of those treatments, do they tend to be more popular or more successful than others? It depends on the population and the person. We have tried to gather all of the things that could improve IVF, for example, that seems to be the most popular in our office, just straightforward IVF, the CNY way. And I point out the CNY way because there's traditional IVF, but we do it a little different. We do something called assisted hatching and ICSI on everybody. That means we handpick the best sperm and actually put it inside the egg. In a lot of clinics, that would be an additional cost. We just do it like that for everybody to optimize success rates. But that seems to be the most popular. When couples have to go through these options when they face an infertility diagnosis and whichever option they choose, what does the success rate tend to be? Does it usually take more than one treatment? That's a question I get asked all the time. What's the success rate? The best IVF possible, it's quoted at 50% chance of success. So that's a kind of a 50-50 chance that is kind of the best technology we have because there's still a lot of unknowns in the human biology and reproduction. It's the best we have to offer them and statistics are at 50%. Outside of the actual medical treatments, what kind of support is offered for couples? Are there things like support groups, counseling options, that kind of thing? Absolutely. This is a very, very stressful process emotionally, physically. And then on top of that, some of the medications that we use alter, you know, the emotions of the women. So they're already stressed out because of what they're going through. And then the medications on top of that can get them a little edgy. So we have multiple venues. All of our locations do have wellness centers that provide fertility massage, acupuncture, relaxation methods. We have yoga, fertility yoga. At this time, it's mostly coming out of the Rochester office, but it is virtual, so the patients can do it with the instructor via the internet. We have internal support groups, as well as the patients throughout the nation have their own support groups, sometimes by area, sometimes by you know, their own personal issues. And if any of that does not work for the patient, we can definitely refer out to somebody that can help her walk this path. 
Now, I know this varies widely from state to state, but generally speaking, has there been an increase in the availability of insurance coverage for these infertility treatments? So I recently found out after a very, very intense fight that New York State is now covering fertility treatments. But to my knowledge, that would be the only state that will mandate fertility treatment from now on. I know that individual insurances and policies, some will have fertility coverage, either partially or complete. But for the most part, there is no coverage at all. I'm wondering how does awareness impact progress on infertility, maybe in the form of legislation or even efforts to sort of reduce the stigma? You'd be surprised. The numbers are going up. The people seeking our help, the ranges are getting broader. And I think that there should be an awareness that this could happen to anybody. We have a new program called Preserve as women are taking charge of their fertility and realizing that, you know, maybe they haven't found Mr. Right at that time, but they do want to preserve their fertility. We have a great program so they can freeze their eggs at a younger age without having what we call the clock ticking, you know. So I think that there is a general awareness that's increasing, but definitely we need to put more efforts to make people aware of things that could impact their fertility and even behavior-wise at a younger age that could have major repercussions later on. So I agree with you. Education will be key. Where do you see research and treatment headed for infertility? Is there anything promising that you're seeing on the horizon? So I think that it will be dealing with those unknown, trying to really, really crank it down to why, you know, is it immune, is it what it is, is it genetic? So there's a lot of that going on. And then anti-aging, just trying to figure out how to push that envelope and maybe even reverse menopause. Thank you very much for joining us today. Well, thank you. That was Dr. Maribel Verdialis, a physician with the CNY Fertility Center. She spoke with us from their offices in Atlanta, Georgia. You're listening to Take Care from WRVO Public Media. I'm Jason Smith. And I'm Catherine Loper. We're jumping back into the issue of infertility now with Karen Jeffries. She's a schoolteacher and part-time comedian, and she's also infertile. We weren't going to have a baby. I could see it in her eyes, on her whole face. I, I felt like going in and telling that doc off. And I just sort of smiled at Betty, but it wasn't much of a smile because there was a, a heavy feeling inside me. She smiled at me, but it was a sad little smile. You may be wondering how anything about infertility could be funny, but in her book, Hilariously Infertile, Jeffries points out where even the clinical can become hysterical, from cleaning and buffing sperm to having a Costco amount of eggs with nowhere to go. We've all laughed in an uncomfortable or sad situation. Humor can be a coping mechanism, and maybe pointing out the craziness that often surrounds a difficult situation can bring about change. You'll hear more of what we mean in our interview with author Karen Jeffries. Thanks for joining us, Karen. Thank you so much for having me. So you talk about your infertility in a humorous way, but let's just start with your story. How did you first learn that you were having issues with infertility? That's a great question. So I had no idea that I was infertile. My husband and I started trying and I 
wasn't getting my period for months and months and months, but I also was receiving negative pregnancy test results. So I didn't understand like what was happening to my body. I was very confused. And I went to my regular OBGYN and she started me on a round of Clomid and nothing happened. And then the next month we did another round of Clomid and nothing happened. And it was actually like a Friday afternoon in December that she called me and she left me a voicemail and she said, I think that you have PCOS, which stands for polycystic ovarian syndrome. And I want you to see the fertility clinic down the street. And it was Friday and like she was gonna be out of the office until, <laughs> until Monday morning. And so naturally I took to Google and I Googled what PCOS was and I was very, very shocked and very upset when I saw that it just said infertility, infertile, can't get pregnant. I was pretty much a wreck, so yeah. And for listeners who don't know, Clomid is a drug that helps stimulate your ovaries. Yes, that's correct, yes. So you were taking that, but it wasn't doing anything, and PCOS seemed to be the cause. Yes, exactly. And like other things we have, other diseases or medical conditions we've talked about, Googling can sometimes be the worst thing to do because you find out there's nothing to do or it's a terrible thing. But eventually, I think you came to see PCOS as both a good and a bad thing. Is that correct? Yeah. So when I went to my fertility clinic in New York City, the doctor who I saw a few weeks later was very positive. And he said, you know, PCOS, it is a bad thing, but it's also a good thing. It's good because it means that you have a ton of eggs. Like I joke, like it's like a Costco amount of eggs that I have, but it's a bad thing because if you picture an oat, like your ovary, I like to picture it kind of like an overgrown garden because there's so many eggs that no one egg can actually grow and become dominant and then release down the fallopian tube. So I don't ovulate on my own. So kind of like an overgrown garden where like there's too much stuff, nothing can actually thrive or grow. So he was very positive and then we started with infertility treatments. And what was the specific treatment that they started you on? So my first round was an IUI, which stands for interuterine insemination and Clomid. I was on the Clomid for like more, a higher dosage of Clomid to make my ovaries actually start doing something. And then we did an IUI, which is basically my husband goes in and he gives his sperm donation and then they take that, they kind of, my doctor used like some funny terms to describe it, but he said that the lab on site would clean and buff my husband's sperm, which we just thought was just really, really funny. And then they basically put it back up inside of the female at the right time of the month when the egg has gone down into the uterus. And so then the hope is that it works. So I can already sense from hearing the beginnings of your story that some of it is very clinical and you go through these ups and these downs of there's no hope, there's hope. And some of it just seems a little bit sort of ridiculous, the way your doctor described what they do to the sperm, for example. So what were you thinking when you're going through all of this? I mean, most of it, when I was going through it, I was very alone. Like I didn't have friends or family that had gone through it. I wasn't on any social media. So I definitely felt very alone, but there were some really, really funny parts to it that I was like, this is so funny. Like, why did he say clean and buff? You know what I mean? Like there were just some things that I, just, I we just could not like stop laughing about. So it was that emotional like roller coaster, definitely and very clinical. But at the same time, we were trying to find some light in it, some humor in it to, to get us or get me through the days. And you mentioned that feeling alone, which I think is what a lot of women feel when they first start going down this road. What did you see when you first arrived at that fertility clinic in the doctor's office in the waiting room? And here you're surrounded by all these women and sometimes husbands and partners, you know, who are going through the same thing. 
Yes. So my first day that I was going in for morning monitoring, which is when you go in and they take your blood and they do a transvaginal ultrasound to see how your follicles are looking. And you do it periodically throughout your cycle so they know how you're kind of progressing. My first day, I was nervous, but I was excited because I was excited to meet other women that were going through what I was going through. I thought that I was going to like make friends and like we clearly have something in common. And when I got there, like no one talks to each other. Like no one talks, no one looks at each other. You don't say good morning. I, I tried like a little side smile one time and I was like, oh no, 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 no side smiles. And I, I came out and my husband's like, how was it? I'm like, it's like fight club. Like no one talks to each other. I don't understand why, but like, you know how like in fight club, it's like the first rule you don't talk about fight club. And that's how I felt because it was kind of like a funeral home. I don't know. And so I thought that was really interesting too. And then me being somewhat of a rule follower and somewhat of a rule breaker. Like I would sometimes be very respectful and other times I'd be like, hey, how's it going? Just to like see what people do. Cause I was like, come on people. Like we all have this in common, you know? So we're all here for the same reason. So yeah, it was very interesting. It does sound like a funeral home, honestly. That's the first thing that came to my mind. But I think that's because, like death, infertility is something that we haven't talked about in years past. But you decided to be very open about your struggles, and you started Hilariously Infertile on, on social media and your website, etc. Why did you decide to do that? So when I was going through it, I was always very open about what I was going through. I never really understood why people don't talk about it. Like any other medical issue that you go through, you talk about. Like my girlfriend went to the dentist the other day and like I know everything that happened at the dentist. You know what I mean? But like why we don't talk about this, I never really understood. So when I was going through it, I personally was very open about it. And then when I was on maternity leave with my second daughter, I was helping one of my friends and another family member through their cycles. And I was kind of... My husband and I were like washing dishes one night and I was like, well, you know, so-and-so is ovulating, so it's go time for them. And I was like, and her follicles are at 17 millimeters. And he said, you know, I think you should write a book because you're helping people. And I just laughed him off thinking like, that's just ridiculous. You know, I don't have time or whatever. And I didn't do anything about it that day. And then a few weeks later, I started writing. I just opened up my laptop and I started writing and the book just poured out of me. Like it just... In about five weeks, the complete book was done, and it's very, very similar to what is available now to buy. And as I was writing it, I just kept thinking, like, this is funny, and this is inappropriate, and it's real, and it's true, and it's the way that women really talk to each other when we're out with our best friends. And so that's when I decided that I needed to share it and that I needed to start the social media, which I never had before, and, like, a website. I needed to get this out there, and then the response was just very overwhelming. How have people responded to it? Because it's a thing people haven't talked about in the past, I'm sure some people might not think it's very funny. So my whole thing is like, people are like, but infertility is not funny. And I'm like, you're right. Infertility is not funny. I mean, it's sad and heartbreaking. And the stories that I've heard since starting this platform and going forward with moving through all these different platforms that Hilariously Infertile is in now, like I've heard the most heart-wrenching anecdotes of people going through their infertility. However, there are some funny parts like the sperm donation or like the transvaginal ultrasound wand or you have to give shots in your in your butt and they, they're just things that are funny about it and everyone has these common stories that we all have to go through and then they are kind of funny. So I'm not saying that infertility is funny, even though that's kind of what the title of the book, Hilariously Infertile, but basically what I'm trying to do is explain that 
it's a very, very, very sad time in people's lives. And if I can get someone who's on their way to an appointment to crack a smile or to laugh a little bit, then I'm doing my job. And that's all I really want to do is just help people when they are sad going through it to maybe have a better day. Well, and is it kind of the theory, if you don't laugh, you're going to cry? It's a coping mechanism. 100%. And it's so ridiculous. Like, the stuff that people have to go through is in the hoops and the everything with, like, insurance and then this and then that. And then some people have to bring their sperm donation in the car, but you have to keep it warm. Like, it's just, like, everything that people have to go through, like, it's absolutely absurd. And so looking at that aspect of it, you know, you can find some humor. And that is what I'm trying to do. Just get people laughing a little bit. And, you know, they say laughter is the best medicine. And that's what I'm trying to do. And do you feel like when you were going through this, if there had been more moments of kindness or gentle humor that this would have helped you? Oh, yes. Yeah, I'm actually, I actually, I was saying this the other day, I was like, I wish I had like, not to sound so prideful, but I wish that I had a me when I was going through this. Like, I wish I had a platform like Hilariously Infertile where I could go to and see these like funny memes or these funny images I completely resonate with that are what I'm going through at that moment. And so that I felt not alone because I did, I felt so alone. So I think that that is what I'm trying to do is just to, I wish I had it and I didn't, but I want to pass that on to people, anyone else who can. And you said the book just sort of poured out of you. Can you tell us what happened when you tried to approach publishers about this book? Yes. So I'm a school teacher. I teach fourth grade dual language Spanish and English, and I don't know anything about publishing. So I just started submitting it to local publishing companies in New York City and local literary agents in New York City. And I either didn't hear anything back or what I heard back was we just don't think it's a big enough market. And that to me is what really, really fueled my fire because I was like, no, like, that's the problem. The problem is that you don't think it's a big enough market, which means these people aren't talking about it and they're at home suffering in silence. And I was like, I just can't have that happen. So that's when I decided to get a website, start the social media and move forward that way. And then after about two years of having the social media platforms, and I had put a few chapters of my book on my website, most things that I do are very follower driven. Like my followers were like, we need to get this book. Like we have to get this book. And I was like, okay, well maybe I'll self publish it. And my goal was just to make back the money that I spent to self publish. And it's been wild. It's far surpassed my goal and it's still selling pretty rapidly. So it's pretty awesome. That's amazing. That's a great story. And do you feel like through your work and and your book and some of the more social media discussion about this topic that the tides are turning a little bit and are people getting a little bit more open about it? I do. I think that people are really starting to realize that this is an issue that's affecting a lot of people throughout the world, not just in the United States, and that it affects men and women and older people, younger people. It really doesn't discriminate. And I think that people are starting to talk about it because they're starting to realize that there's nothing wrong with you. Like, I know I have PCOS. It doesn't mean there's, and there is, I guess, something technically wrong with me, but there's nothing wrong with me. Like, I'm not alone. I'm not this crazy person who's going through all these feelings and thoughts and emotions like I'm completely normal in everything that I'm thinking while I'm going through this process and I think that that's important that people really understand like 
everything that you're going through is normal and your thoughts and emotions are completely normal and we're going to help you through this and we're going to be open and honest about what's going on. And I think also it being more of a theme that you see on TV and among celebrities coming out and saying that they've struggled with infertility, I think is really helping just to lessen the stigma of infertility. Well, we appreciate you telling us your story. Karen, thanks for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. Karen Jeffries is a teacher, part-time comedian, and author of the book, Hilariously Infertile. Jeffries shares stories of infertility and more weekly on Instagram. You'll find her at hilariously underscore infertile. When we return, adoption as an option for infertile couples. Plus the latest in health. This is Take Care. More on health and wellness from WRVO straight ahead. We're talking about infertility today, its apparent causes and options for treatment, but also the experiences of those who struggle with infertility. With a diagnosis as personal as infertility, each step of the process is informed almost entirely by the person going through it. What one couple chooses to do to try to conceive can be a world different from what another couple would prefer. And all of those choices, wants and needs included, can be very different than what is actually feasible. Adoption has been and will remain an option for those struggling with infertility. But as Ellen Abbott reports, there have been some major changes in recent years, mainly fewer children available for adoption. The number of adoptions in the U.S. is declining. According to Adoption.org, in 1971, 90,000 children were placed for adoption in this country. In 2014, that number dropped to 18,000 infants under the age of two. Anita Stevens has been in the adoption business for over 25 years, currently the executive director of Family Connections, an adoption agency in Cortland. She says there are several reasons adoptions are down. In states like New York, there are simply fewer kids out there to adopt. The state has a lot of services, medical services, support services, and we also have more availability of abortion, so that has reduced you know, the availability of children that need adoptive homes in New York State and states that would have similar laws. In other states, there's more adoptions because there's not as many services that are offered by those states. If domestic infant adoptions are not available, then families sometimes turn to inter-country adoption, and those numbers are down as well. According to the U.S. Department of State, American families adopted 4,059 children through inter-country adoption between October of 2017 and September of 2018. That's a 13% decline over the previous year and down 82% from 2004. Stephen says many countries, particularly in Eastern Europe, got out of the adoption business in the wake of the Hague Adoption Convention of 2008. It created stricter regulations regarding adoption in an effort to cut back on human trafficking. The ages of the children being adopted from other countries has also shifted. There's been a cycle where a lot of families chose to adopt infants overseas. Now those children are not so much infants. They are older kids in the orphanages in foreign countries or in foster care in foreign countries. Foster care in the U.S. is also an adoption route for prospective parents. That again depends on foster care policies in individual states. For example, New York State encourages family foster care adoptions, limiting the numbers here. Oftentimes families in New York will adopt kids from the foster care system in other states, and those are generally families who aren't choosing to adopt um, 
you know, to enter the foster care system where they where the main goal is reunification. They're looking for kids that are already freed for adoption. And generally those, you know, are families who struggle with infertility. While there have been new trends in how adoptions take place, there's also a new look to the families who want to adopt a child, according to Stevens. But you have traditional and non-traditional adoptive parents, meaning the traditional is your heterosexual couple, and the non-traditional parents can be single men, single women, same-sex, married couples, or, or couples who are together in a relationship and they're not married. Even though the number of adoptions is trending down, Stevens says it will always be an alternative. There are no national statistics, but the Adoption Network estimates there are one to two million families interested in adopting. There's a lot of kids out there available for adoption if people are open to more than the traditional infant kids. And there's a lot of kids in the world that need homes, so that's probably why the adoption agencies are still working hard to place kids. For Take Care, I'm Ellen Abbott. Infertility has become big business with apps that track your cycle and supplements that claim to set you up for success. And now venture capitalists are getting in the game with huge investments in fertility startups. Joining us to discuss the reason why is Kate Clark, a reporter at TechCrunch. She covers startups and venture capital. Our discussion focuses on Kate's recent article, It's a New Era for Fertility Tech. In it, she reports on why fertility startups are fielding calls from venture capitalists. When I wrote that, I was coming from the perspective of the fact that not a lot of private capital has been invested in the space at all. And actually not until this year, 2019, a little bit last year, did we see venture capitalists sort of start putting their dollars into women's health, whether that's fertility or feminine care products or anything like that. And because there wasn't a lot of capital going into the space, there just wasn't the ability to have great progress and innovation because the founders weren't getting the capital that they needed to build great businesses there. That leads us to the next logical question, why the sudden influx of money in women's health and things like fertility? As a society, there's been a lot of changes, and I think trends in venture capital definitely connect to how we behave just as people. I think people have become more comfortable discussing them, and I think when it comes to fertility, men have become more comfortable discussing it, and unfortunately, venture capitalists are mostly men. And when you have that, oftentimes men won't invest in topics and fields in which they can't relate to or don't know a lot about. So we're seeing more men become comfortable and knowledgeable. And I think probably with fertility, that has something to do with it. But it's really tough to pin down, you know, a reason as to why we're finally seeing so much investment in that space. Regardless of the reason behind the influx of cash in the sphere, the result is new innovation. So we asked what kinds of things tech startups are addressing in the fertility market, one of the most basic being technology that tracks menstruation. You know, there's a lot of period trackers. I think that's kind of still a really big one. There's companies based all over the world that are focused on this. Max Levchin, who's a co-founder of PayPal, co-founded a company called Glow, which is a period tracker in that space. And as far as new advancements? There's a company called Progeny, which is about to go public. That's more of a information platform. And that company is going to be the first IPO in the space, which I think will be a really good test the investors' appetite for these businesses going public will give us a behind-the-scenes look of how the business is operated and how well it does. So that's really interesting and a big advancement. Clark says there's an array of physical products being developed outside of fertility in the startup space as well, like new options for breast pumps and feminine care products. And there are companies rethinking in vitro fertilization and egg freezing at a brick-and-mortar level sort of trying to reinvent that old model by potentially, they say, making it cheaper. I think that that's not proven yet. We don't know whether 
these are solutions that will actually be more efficient and more accessible, or if they'll just be startup-y versions of what already exists. The health and wellness industry has been a moneymaker for decades. As an example, the most popular and occasionally short-lived diet plans don't come free. Think Atkins or South Beach. Your first 10 meals may be free, but that's where it ends. Anytime that an investor is going to be interested in a market, they're going to ask you, what's the total address- total addressable market? And if it's not in the billions of dollars, I think they'll probably just sort of turn the other direction. So this is a big market. I mean, many, many people um, are affected by fertility issues, whether that's being infertile or just struggling to get pregnant men and women on both sides. It makes a lot of sense to me why investors would be interested. It's surprising that it has taken so long for it to become something that you can actually bring up in the San Francisco tech community and that people actually be interested in having a conversation about it. I think that's not until the last year that became somewhat of a conversation starter here. But is this a market that has staying power? Will fertility startups stand the test of time, or will many of them go by the wayside with increased competition for market share and investor dollars? Most of the businesses that I've covered are pretty early in their life cycles, which means, you know, they have a lot of growth left to do. They might get acquired. They might go public. And those are factors that will matter a lot because investors are going to be looking at those exits and be thinking, okay, if these companies truly can have successful IPOs or M&A exits, then we'll keep investing. So we have to wait and see. And I think that will be a big factor in determining how big this really goes. But for now, I think a lot of investors are looking for their very first company in the space to invest in. And because of that, I think this will only continue, I would say, for several more years before it kind of peters out. You may have noticed some other companies getting involved in the fertility space. I noticed that Fitbit has a fertility tracker feature and wondered if other companies were doing the same. Very recently, I think it was a few months back, Apple for the first time announced a fertility tracker or a period tracker or something. It was like one of their very first women's health launches within the Apple Watch. And that is something that Apple could have done a long time ago and didn't do. And I think part of the reason that happened is they're seeing innovation from these startups that are really driving the conversation forward. So I think you'll see that. And then you'll see, say, egg freezing clinics or IVF clinics, if indeed the startups have found a way to make the entire process cheaper and more efficient, then they're going to have to look at their business and figure out how they can cut costs because they're going to lose all their customers to new solutions that are cutting out unnecessary costs. But I have yet to see that actually happen. And I don't know if startups truly have figured out how to make that significantly more accessible for women. Competition, like Clark mentions, is usually good for women. We ask if this matchup of tech fertility startups and venture capitalists will have any lasting effect on healthcare as a whole. There will be more options available. The trends in the startup space really do have impacts across the entire ecosystem, whether you're looking at, you know, a healthcare company or a software company or whatever it might be. I think having more available and having really smart people thinking really hard about how to make these experiences better is a net positive. So it will just drive change across the industry. And there's certainly no downsides to having, you know, a lot of smart people thinking about it and have a lot of money going into it. That's the latest in health this week on Take Care with Kate Clark, a journalist for TechCrunch, writing about startups and venture capital. Thanks for being with us on this episode of Take Care, produced by WRVO Public Media. You can send questions or comments via email to takecare at wrvo.org or just find us on social media. This show and others are available online at wrvo.org and wherever you get your podcasts. Take Care is produced by your hosts, Jason Smith and myself, Catherine Loper, plus Mark Lavonier and Leah Landry. Mark is also responsible for our theme music. Support for Take Care comes from the Health Foundation for Western and Central New York. I'm Jason Smith. And I'm Catherine Loper. Thanks for tuning in to Take Care.